A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is the Unplayable Podcast. On today's episode, we'll look at Australia's opening World Cup win, discuss the top news stories from around the world and have a crack at play it or leave it. Sam Ferris here joining me for a record fifth straight time is former News Limited Chief Cricket Writer Malcolm Conn. Welcome back, Mal. Mate, uh, delightful to be here and uh, absolutely delighted in these circumstances that we've had uh, a win in the Women's World Cup. Looking forward to talking about it. Well, let's start with that right now. Australia kicked off their Women's World Cup title defence with a resounding eight-wicket win over the West Indies on Monday in Taunton. The thrashing was set up by an all-round bowling display before an imperious opening stand between Beth Mooney and Nicole Bolton extinguished any hopes the Windies had of an upset. Mal, uh, an emphatic win like that, you couldn't ask for a better start to a World Cup tournament. No, it was fantastic and it was very well planned uh, from the outset. Uh, when um, Meg uh, Lanning lost the toss and was eventually allowed to bowl, yep. <laughs> through very <laughs> confusing circumstances, um, uh, she uh, she used the spinners very well. I thought that uh, the great thing she did was to uh, take the pace off the ball. So we uh, we had spinners bowling the bulk of the overs with uh, Jonathan... Uh, Beams and Gardner all bowling sort of pretty much all of their overs uh, and I thought that was a great ploy to be able to uh, be in a position um, with uh, shoot at the top of the order bowling in swingers and keeping it tight bowling into the pad so they couldn't free the arms Elise Perry uh, bowled quite attackingly and took three wickets and the, and the spinners all did a good job so I thought it was a very well planned uh, bowling uh, backed up by some excellent fielding and some outstanding batting against a, a fairly lacklustre team. Yeah, well, I guess we saw a little bit in the Champions Trophy, different formats and a, and a kind of a, uh, a different tournament set up. But we saw spin play a bit of a part in the back end of that tournament. Australia have started the tournament with three frontline spinners. Is that, you reckon, the way they're going to go throughout the rest of the tournament? Well, it'll probably depend on the opposition. But I think the other thing with the spinners, too, in the women's game is because the women uh, don't play the same power game as the men then uh, the spinners can be more effective. They don't get quite so brutalised. And uh, they do offer terrific variation. And uh, very impressive to see that Australia's playing Ash Gardner, who is a genuine all-rounder, playing her as the third spinner. And she was listed, I think, to bat at number eight. Yeah, nine, I think. Nine, yeah. yeah. yeah which which gives um, Australia an enormously long batting lineup. So it gives them the confidence to, uh, to take the game on from the start, as they did. Would have been a tough decision to pick Kristen Beams over Sarah Ailey, Mal, uh, a leg spinner, Every team loves to have a leg spinner. Um, Beams, I think it was close to a 50-50 call for her to play in that game uh, over Sarah Ailey. But uh, the right decision was made and she's had a great success in global tournaments in the past. I think she's going to be a real trump card for the Aussies. Oh, I agree. And uh, very few uh, women at the top level would have seen decent leg spin, um, unless it was bowled by Beams, of course. Uh, And certainly when you're trying to take the game on and play attacking cricket, uh, then the leg spinners have a great knack of taking wickets, even if they can leak a few runs from time to time. So I think it was a, a terrific decision uh, in last night's game. I mean, we see here that she's got two for 30 off her full 10 overs uh, and uh, was one of the, the bowlers who was able to 
take the pace off the ball and frustrate the West Indies. Yeah, well, in reply, chasing 205 to win, a 171-run first week of partnership between Bolton and Mooney. Put any doubt of the result to bed. Uh, they were cruising, and they were running off a rare 10-wicket win until Mooney probably got a little bit too aggressive and yorked herself and was bowled for 70. But there was no stopping Bolton, who carried on to reach her century from 108 balls, her third ODI century, uh, and she was there at the end with Perry. I'll tell you what, Mal, watching those two play, talked about the, the power game, but geez, they, they were extremely ruthless, especially on anything short, and then they weren't afraid to go over the top. I think a, a real feature of Bolton's play was hitting through the line and clearing the infield. Yeah, I, I thought it was fantastic the way they played. They uh, they batted uh, sensibly, but yes, they did take the bowling on, and uh, I thought the West Indies, the batting was obviously pretty all over the place, and their, their bowling, unfortunately, was just generally too short, and they gave them too much to hit, and all credit to Mooney and Bolton, they really took them on. Anything that was short, they whacked it, because I thought the, the West Indian girls bowled at uh, a pretty reasonable pace, and that uh, Sulman swung a few early and, and looked quite dangerous, but uh, they uh, anything that uh, wasn't online, uh, particularly, as we said, short, they got absolutely murdered, so... Uh, very imposing start. Mal, before a ball was even bowled, we had a bit of controversy, as you alluded to before. West Indies captain Stefani Taylor won the toss and told the television host Ian Bishop that she elected to bowl, but apparently that's not what she told Meg when she won. Meg Lanning when she won the toss. She said that she wanted to bat first, so the teams dep- team split up, and then they Meg realised, oh, hang on, what's going on here? I thought we were bowling first, and that's what she wanted to do. So they came back together, and then the match referee got involved. Uh, the, right, the right decision was made in the end, and uh, the West Indies were end up, ended up batting first and Australia bowl first. But a bit of drama to begin with, Mal. You don't see that every day, that uh, one captain will say one thing to the opposing captain and say something to the TV audience. Do you think she just got a bit muddled? I mean, or did she just think maybe she made the wrong decision and, and try and change it? Well, it's bizarre, wasn't it? I mean, you would think that the one thing you can plan is what you're going to do when you win the toss. I mean, there's only two <laughs> Absolutely. alternatives. Yeah. And uh, professional players, or in the in the case of uh, most women's teams, semi-professional players, if you're over there preparing for the tournament, then one of the things you would do was sit down with your team hierarchy and and figure out what you're going to do. So it was the most one of the, the most amazing things I've ever seen uh, in a cricket game to actually get the toss wrong yeah. uh, and then have to get the match referee to sort it out. I've never seen that before. Well, there you go. Well, first for you, Mal. Uh, okay, so another bit of controversy in the game. While the match was beamed live into Australia and all around the world, it was not technically a TV game. It was more of a really uh, really slick professional live stream. Uh, and the broadcast was fantastic. But in that sense, there was no... DRS, there were no square leg television cameras and for that reason there was no third umpire. Uh, so there couldn't be any TV TV umpire decisions uh, and that was really felt when one of the West Indies players was uh, caught in a tight run out. It looked close live and then when they showed a replay from mid-wicket it was actually shown that the batter was out uh, by about a foot. Uh, no TV replay, Mal. Um, quite bizarre really in a World Cup game you would think that they'd try and at least get a couple of square league cameras on there because uh, I know it's first round and the first lot of games, but every win is crucial and every wicket is crucial. Well, I would have thought if the International Cricket Council is taking women's cricket seriously, as they certainly appear to be with the vast increase in prize money for this tournament, I think it's now up over $2 million Australian dollars. Yeah. And the winner takes away something like sort of over 800000 Australian dollars. So certainly the ICC has invested heavily in that to give it... Uh, the, the credence that it deserves, uh, but I would have thought if it's, if it's the major women's event, then you would have facilities that, that would highlight it was a major women's event. And I, I saw that run out. It was clearly out. Yeah. I, I don't know quite what the umpire was thinking. In fact, if, if you looked in a line, I'm not even sure if the umpire was in the straight line with the, the crease at the time. So 
I was very surprised to see that that wasn't reviewed, that there wasn't a situation where you could go back and have a look at it because it wasn't one of those tight line calls. It was yeah. clearly out. I mean, there are 10 TV games and the semi-finals and finals will definitely have all the technology available. Australia play uh, Sri Lanka next on Thursday in Bristol. It's hard to see the Aussies being too troubled there. But Mal, as we so emphatically saw in the Champions Trophy, you can't rule out anybody in these tournaments. Well, no, you can't. Uh, I think that this one is a bit more comfortable than the Australians found in the Champions Trophy. That was death or glory, particularly with the rain that affected the tournament. And yep. Basically, Australia had uh, had won, uh, had a bad match against Eng- uh, England and suddenly they're out. Um, yep. Here, the eight-team tournament, the, the girls play the other seven teams. So... It's a longer tournament where you've got more chance of the cream coming to the surface over the long haul. So you're going to expect an upset here and there. That's cricket, particularly shorter form cricket. Uh, but I would have thought, given the way that um, Pakistan so easily disposed of Sri Lanka recently that uh, in the last few days, that uh, Australia could do the same thing. All right. That's our wrap-up of Australia's World Cup win. Uh, take a short break and we'll come back with some top water news from around the world. Mal, let's start with some pretty big news last week with uh, Ireland and Afghanistan officially being confirmed as uh, full members. They've got full member status now, which means they can play test match cricket. They're the 11th and 12th full member nations we've seen since 1877, way back then. Uh, It's exciting news for both countries, Mal. Well, it is exciting news for both countries, and it's a remarkable story, Afghanistan, isn't it? Absolutely. A war-torn country. uh, When I was in Pakistan in 98 on that tour and we went up through the Khyber Pass and we went through the big refugee camps, there was something like 2 million Pakistanis uh, in... uh, Sorry, 2 million Afghanis in Pakistan as refugees uh, as a result of the the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. Um, And the whole generations of Afghanis grew up in the uh, refugee camps playing cricket against the local Pakistani kids and uh, took it back with them. And now they've gone to a point where... It's uh, particularly impressive what they've done. Um, so good on them. Uh, it means that there'll be further investment in cricket. Unfortunately, it's going to be the second cricket nation now where we can't play home games following Pakistan. Yeah. Uh, and good on Ireland as well. Ireland will now get significantly increased investment in cricket in Ireland, which is what it needs. Uh, however, I do have a caveat on expanding test-playing nations. I think that uh, test cricket should be an elite form of cricket. Um, I think that... Um, the introduction of Zimbabwe, uh, which was probably just okay at the time because they had a reasonable side, is now flawed. Yeah. Um, z- unfortunately, the Zimbabwe team has gone the way of the Zimbabwe country and uh, is just not competitive at, t- at test level. So uh, I think that uh, while this is great for the countries and will enhance investment, I think that there probably would have been other ways of doing this. Uh, and I think that uh, we will still find that the best Irish players like uh, Owen Morgan will still go and play county cricket and qualify to play for England because they can then make a living as professional cricketers. Uh, I'm not sure how much an Irish cricketer would make even with test status, but I'm sure that you'll make a heck of a lot more playing for county cricket and playing for England. It would be great if we could have, say, the United States get its act together, and I noticed the United States Cricket Association was just kicked out by the ICC again, and they're trying to rebuild... Cricket in the States. There's a lot of interest in cricket in the States with the expat, expat South Asians, expat West yeah. Indians. It's the, th- in terms of value of television right, it, uh, rights, it's the third highest value for television rights for Australian cricket behind India and England. So right. there's a lot of interest there. Um, there's interest in, in some European countries. I would love to have seen the United States or Canada or, or uh, uh, Netherlands or somewhere where there's um, strong infrastructure. 
uh, and to take the game into, say, continental Europe or, or into the Americas. It would have been great to see those countries step up. Unfortunately, they haven't, but it would be nice in, in future if we can have some, some strong countries uh, stand up and make uh, international cricket even stronger. And I reckon if they put cricket in the Olympics, we'd uh, move that way a lot more quickly. Well, that's another topic for another day, Mal. But do you think that now, uh, with 12 test-playing nations, they're going to move pretty quickly towards this test championship that has been sort of floated around for the last couple of years? You can have two pools of six, you can have promotion and relegation, and that way it probably does maintain the quality. So you're not having Australia play Ireland and Afghanistan because at this point of time, uh, the most successful test nation against the newest test nation it's not going to be competitive, you would have thought. But that way, if it's the bottom six playing against each other and then they get promoted every two or four years, perhaps that might uh, increase, might be a catalyst for team performance. I mean, the, the international schedule is so jam-packed as it is. You can't go around having to play 11 different countries, home and away, in the space of four years. No, well, yeah, it's my understanding, that's right, that uh, that Ireland and Afghanistan will play in a, in a sort of a lower group. It'll be a virtually sort of an undeclared Division Two. And that the the top eight nations will will basically play off in a in a in a uh, more of a division one. It'll be interesting to see what happens when the future tours program comes out. I mean, the problem is that Test cricket takes such heavy investment in terms of time and money and everything else that it's just going to be massive uh, money losers for teams that host Ireland or Afghanistan. In the same, most teams lose money playing Test cricket. Uh, South Africa loses money playing yeah. Test cricket. So. There's going to be more countries losing money playing Test cricket. So Test cricket's supposed to be sacred. Um, it, it's great for them to get an opportunity, but and if there is promotion and relegation, that's terrific. But they've, they they have there's been no promotion and relegation here. There's just been promotion. There's now 12 Test teams instead of 10. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think that over in the long run it's going to achieve a heck of a lot. But great for both those nations. Where do you think the standard of Test cricket is right now compared to 10 years ago? Compared to 20 years ago there are more teams but are the top teams still as competitive if, if you put this Australian team against maybe not the one 10 years ago because it still has some pretty big names in it but even like for like against other nations are they just competitive are the top teams as competitive as they were 10 20 30 years ago oh, I think in some cases more competitive because 20 years ago Australia was flogging everyone right 30 years ago the West Indies were flogging everyone I mean we had Teams like India and and uh, and Pakistan, sort of back in the eighties, that struggled to compete. So, I think that uh, if you look at Test cricket now, it is it's it's really tough, uh, and it's one of those scenarios where the home team continues to triumph. I mean, yep. it's, it's still tough. Um, so, I think that it's still competitive, and I think that uh, it, it's. Uh, probably more competitive because Australia has been brought back to the field. The West Indies, unfortunately, have gone from the best to one of the worst, which is a shame. Uh, but it, it's very attractive cricket. You only have to look through the strike rates and the scoring rates. When I started watching uh, Test cricket in the 70s, then you know, if a team was sort of four for 240 at stumps on the first day, then you'd say that it's been a good day's Test cricket. Right. Well, now if a team was four for 240 at stumps on the first day, people would be saying how boring because they expect 300 runs in a day. At least, yeah. Which, which uh, is now sort of pretty much the norm. So the scoring rates now are far higher than they used to be. The, if you look at uh, Bradman's scoring rate, I think Bradman scored at around about 60 uh, runs per 100 balls. Okay. Um, Ponting has done the same. Hayden's done the same. Gilchrist scored at over 80 runs per 100 balls. Yep. So... I'm not saying that you know any of those guys were Bradman, but certainly they played uh, as I think a result of of one day cricket enhancing players' skills to take the game on. 
uh, I think that um, Test cricket has played in a very attractive manner. There's much far fewer draws than there used to be. Teams play to win. Mm. Uh, it's a miracle now sometimes if a Test match goes five days. So I think the Test cricket's got a lot to offer, and I think the top nations are still um, genuinely competitive. And just one last one on this. Uh, we've talked about expansion. Quality of cricket is the way forward in the future. Day-night cricket, are we going to start seeing more and more day-night test matches in series so that people can watch these games and attend these games in prime time when they're not at work? Well, I think there just has to be. I mean, test cricket is anomaly and a, an anomaly, a very popular anomaly <laughs> in, a, in a number of ways. Uh, and one of them is that most of it's played when people are at work or at school. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just bizarre. If you look at all the major successful sports, uh, most of them are played at night. You know, all the Absolutely. football codes uh, play a lot of their uh, games at night. Um, it's all to do with television rights, who can watch it, crowds, who can get there. So to me, that's just the way to go. I, I think that whatever arguments there might be about the ball or, or anything else, it's still test cricket. The, the games we've seen here, the game in Brisbane was... Um, was good. That was good cricket. Uh, yeah. The two games we've had in Adelaide, the two day-night test matches have been beauties um, and exceedingly popular. The crowds that they get in those matches in Adelaide, so they're already talking about the traditional Adelaide day-night test match after two games. <laughs> so uh, it's just the way to go, particularly if the weather's good in, in summer, you can get along and have a drink and enjoy yourself. I, I just think, I think it's a great concept. All right, let's head to the subcontinent where after weeks of speculation about a rift between Anil Kumble and Vera Kohli, the suspicions were confirmed when Kumble stood down from the role as India head coach, saying his relationship with Kohli had become untenable. Apparently, Kohli had some reservations about Kumble's style as coach, and despite getting offered a two-year extension, the former league spinner knocked it back and walked. Mao, so is that as clear-cut as player power gets? Well, I think to a point, I think it also highlights how difficult it is for uh, India to, and, and maybe most of the subcontinental countries actually, but certainly India to have an Indian coach. Yeah. Um, we've seen um, Sri Lanka most of the time have um, foreign coaches uh, and that's not unusual uh, through the whole subcontinent. And one of the reasons I think for that is that it takes away, if there's any been, been any tensions in relationships um, during their playing days, they come in with a clean slate, probably come in with different ideas and probably um, tread a bit more warily. Uh, I think it would be very difficult for a high-profile Indian player to then come back as a coach yeah. and not have the same sort of tensions that may have existed. Um, I see that Virat Kohli's been mentioned as a possible... Not Virat Kohli, I'm sorry. Virinda Seawag yep. has been mentioned as a, as a possible coach. I think that would be a disaster. I think that not only was Virinda Seawag a... A, a particularly talented but 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 pretty lazy sort of a cricketer yeah. um, who uh, thought training was something that you did with a locomotive from the front. <laughs> uh, I also think that the fact that he's Indian and the fact that, that there would have been existing relationships, good, bad or indifferent, would make his job difficult. So I would think whether it's a Tom Moody who, who has successfully coached Sri Lanka in the past or uh, somebody else from, a, from another foreign country, I just think that it takes away uh, an element of difficulty in, in what can be a, a pretty tough job. I think there was a BCCI official, an unnamed BCCI official, there seems to be a lot of them floating around, uh, who said that one of the real key aspects of getting the job would have to be getting along with Vera Colin. We spoke to Jason Gillespie last week and he was saying that you don't always have to have a yes man as the coach or the captain. You don't always want to agree because you want to come at things from different angles and you, the captain or the coach might be thinking of something different. You haven't seen it that way and it could be good for their relationship. But it seems like in India, I mean, Duncan Fletcher, Gary Kirsten, those successful coaches for India, um, you didn't hear them 
ruffle too many feathers and now with Coley being the superstar he is to get him on side goes a long way to keeping team harmony well that's right I mean there are various ways of doing things um, I think that uh, it's interesting that that you mentioned Duncan Fletcher because Duncan Fletcher wrote a book making all made, uh, making all sorts of bold statements and then obviously got paid very well to go and coach India and then uh, ripped up most of his book yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because he he, uh, he had to fit in with um, what the BCCI believed and 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 what worked best in terms of coaching India where he, you know he's clearly a good cricket coach and he did a good job so uh, I think that if you can get a uh, an experienced, credentialed foreign coach, um, and we can go back to John Wright. John Wright did a good job as Indian coach. Yeah. So I think that you know there'd probably be a few candidates, and I think none of them are Indian. Right. Tom Moody could be the guy over there. Now let's just touch briefly on the MOU impasse uh, that's happening between the Australian Cricket Association and Cricket Australia. The June 30 deadline uh, is only a couple of days away, and... Uh, doesn't look like there'll be an agreement reached at that point. Uh, CA modified its MOU offer, uh, but it was rejected by the ACA, who are sticking firm in their belief. A revenue share model is the way to go. Mal, I'm not really sure when this deadlock's going to be broken, but let's just hope it's sooner rather than later. We just want to get this out of the headlines and just get all the talk focusing about what's happening on the field. Well, I think fundamentally all sides have the good of cricket at heart. I think that that's the most important thing. Players love playing. I mean, certainly the players would be very keen to represent Australia every opportunity they get. There's only so many times in a cricket career that probably lasts about 10 years or a good player or a bit more maybe that uh, you get that chance to represent Australia, particularly in test cricket. So players would clearly be want to be playing again. Um, cricket Australia and the States uh, clearly have a lot to do with the game, not, not only with um, you know the high-performance units that they put so much into with the players, but also at the at the grassroots and the pathway and the, the various other development levels that um, Cricket Australia and the States are involved in. So um, I, I'm not as confident as I was that this will be solved anytime soon, but mm. uh, I would think that um, uh, it will have to start moving at some stage and, and it will get solved because in the end, everybody involved loves the game and wants the best for the game. We're going to move on to a strange one, Mal, and you've been involved in it. The old uh, Twitter spat in your time, I <laughs> to say. Uh, but this one really is bizarre. Former Test batsman Damien Martin and Melbourne Demons midfielder Clayton Oliver. They're in a bit of a Twitter feud uh, over the weekend um, when the AFL footballer apparently dived during a match against the West Coast Eagles. Martin didn't think there was much contact when uh, Oliver and an opponent came together. He tweeted, am I watching soccer? Uh, later that day, Oliver replied to Martin's tweet, saying that he should just worry about that shot in 1994 and posted a link to YouTube just in case Mardo had forgotten about it. That shot Oliver was referring to is that infamous shot at the SCG when Martin chipped Alan Donald to cover to be the penultimate wicket with just seven runs needed for victory. Australia lost that test match. Mal, a lot going on there, but what did you make of all that? Yeah, well, it was obviously just a throwaway line from from Damien Martin. I saw the incident myself and I was surprised. Um, It didn't... But I can't say there wasn't much in it because I wasn't there and I didn't feel it. Um, And uh, clearly there was something in it, but he did go down in rather unusual fashion. So I think it was the sort of throwaway line that you often see on Twitter or social media and clearly young Oliver's taken exception to it. But um, I'm going to be a bit of a defender with Mardo on his 1994 shot because he actually made 59 in the first innings. And he was hanging around trying to hold things together as a 21-year-old in the second innings in a, in a star-studded lineup. If you go through that Australian lineup yeah. with sort of Taylor, Boone, Border, I mean, there was a lot of big names in that side who had all failed. And there's a 21-year-old trying to sort of hang on grimly and 
and didn't quite get there. So, um, yeah, I guess it just uh, highlights once again that um, everyone has to be careful what they say on social media or you'll wear the consequences. That's right. we we'll go back to that. That match, Al, do you think Martin had always, I mean, looking back a long time now, but do you think he was unfairly treated after that? He didn't play test cricket for another six years. Yeah, it's, he, he certainly felt it. He took it to heart and it was tough. But the, the interesting thing that people forget about that was he was only playing in that game because Steve Waugh was injured. I think he had a hamstring injury. And so then when Steve Waugh came in, Marto went out. But clearly Marto was blamed, I think, somewhat unfairly for that loss, uh, given all the big names sort of failed when it mattered. Uh, but he took it hard and it took him a long time to work his way back into the team. He was made captain of Western Australia when he wasn't ready. His form at state level was poor. He was lucky to survive at state level. At one stage, his form was so poor. So it took him a while to get back, but all credit to him, he did. He climbed back and he became a very good player for Australia, firstly in the one-day game and then, and then in the test arena. So I, I, I always thought he was... Uh, a, a quality cricketer and I was glad to see that he, he finished the, the career off with um, with good cricket towards the end. And in his prime, a few better to watch. He was just such a classy, elegant batsman, wasn't he? He was right out there with Mark Ward, just made it look easy. Just had so much time and just waited on the ball. And, and the thing that really impressed me was when he came back into that test team, he, Australia had uh, tours of India and Sri Lanka. And he was one of the really dominant players in those tours. And for a guy that was brought up in Perth and was essentially a back foot player, like playing square off the back foot was probably his favourite shot and could certainly cut and pull, uh, to be able to sort of use his feet so well and to be in such a good position to play quality spin like Murali in yeah. Sri Lanka and the, and the Indian spinners in, in, in some, on some pretty difficult wickets when Australia won over there in 2004... Um, he was a sublime cricketer in, in those series when um, he really his environment said he shouldn't have been. Now we don't see it every day, but on the weekend, England's Jason Roy was out obstructing the field. It's the first time it's ever happened in T20 international cricket. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, uh, haven't seen the footage, head to cricket.com.au. The video will be there. Check it out. And you watch Roy veer off course. He's going for a quick single, cutting across the wicket, changed sides, and he's protected his stumps and. Uh, the throw towards the stumps has collided with him. It looked pretty obvious. The third, they went to the third umpire. He gave it out and he was on his way. And even Owen Morgan after the match, he wasn't that upset with the call. He sort of said it was a 50-51. But, you know, looking at it, uh, he probably did uh, just try and prevent being run out. Yeah, and I don't have a problem with that. I mean, look, it's it's been a batsman's game in every regard for as long as the game's been played. I mean, for a start, they get six or seven of them into the team and, and only a few bowlers and one wicketkeeper. So... <laughs> Um, and uh, they've got shorter boundaries and bigger bats and uh, and flatter wickets. So I just think that anything that evens the game up and keeps the batsmen honest is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, have you seen any other obstructing the field dismissals? There was one 2015, Ben Stokes, he got in the way of a, a Mitchell Stark throw at the stumps. But what about any other sort of rare dismissals? Were you there when, when Steve Waugh handled the ball in India? Uh, yes, and I was also there when Graham Gooch handled the ball. And... and uh, was Stokes handled the ball um, rather than obstructing the field because he stuck his hand out? But uh, either way, either yeah. way, it was yeah. quite bizarre. Yeah, um, certainly. I've um, I saw all of those, and the players, as soon as they did it, realised that they'd done the wrong thing. They yeah. realised that they were out. And finally, Mal uh, to South Africa and uh, the Proteus Limit Overs captain AB de Villiers. He's set to sit down with Cricket South Africa and work out his international playing future in August. De Villiers hasn't played a test since January last year, and it looks like. His days playing in the Whites might be over. I've heard a few things uh, about his playing future in the five-day game. 
and it doesn't look like he's going to continue on, which would be a real shame, wouldn't it? Because he's been such a brilliant batsman, a great servant for South African cricket, and there are a few batsmen that can do what he can do when he's out in the middle. Correct. He's just been amazing. He's a... His ability to control games, um, either the red ball or the white ball, have just been phenomenal. Just to p- put himself in positions that would horrify any technical coach and still hit the <laughs> ball a long yep. way in, in positions where the fieldsmen aren't. So he's been you know, the, the bats, one of the batsmen of our time and certainly the most creative and, and, and at times destructive uh, batsman of our time. The, the way he's played has just been extraordinary. However, he's clearly feeling it. He's, sort of, he's, been, he's played a lot of cricket over a lot of years now. He's gone off the boil. Um, I'm just wondering now whether when you start to sort of think about meetings and sit down and talk about things that whether that that hunger you really need to keep uh, being the best you can possibly be at the top level um, is still 100% there even if it's only 99% um, you just can't quite uh, do what you used to do we saw that with Mitchell Johnson who retired halfway through a series because he just decided that uh, he'd had enough so um, I really hope that De Villiers does make some strong decisions about what he's going to do with his cricket and he's, he's happy within himself. If he's uncomfortable with Test cricket, well, fine, give it away, concentrate on the one-dayers and give it everything and be the, the d- dynamic player you were because he's in danger of, of having been such a good player to find be to sort of um, uh, sliding away to be a little bit of a shadow of himself, which means he'd probably only average 50. <laughs> That's right. I think it's a good point that... It- if he does retire from Test match cricket, does that mean he stops playing first-class cricket? And I reckon you start to see a bit of a decline in players' performance, especially if they're going to just be one day or T20 sort of guns for hire, that if you're not playing competitive first-class cricket, the performances do drop off. Two years ago, Shane Watson had a pretty good IPL and he was paid two million bucks, but then he quit playing first-class cricket and was just playing T20 cricket. And this year, he said it's the worst one he's ever been a part of and maybe because he didn't have that volume of cricket under his belt you just hope for someone like De Villiers if he does continue to go around that he can like you said sustain that extreme elite level that he can perform at because even guys like Kumar Sangakara who, who has been playing county cricket he didn't play very well in the in the big bash last year I think you probably just need to keep you know the, the repetitions up otherwise you might just lose that edge. That's right and I think that uh, the classic we saw in last season's big bash was Andre Russell. I mean, yeah. He's a guy who there's a gun for hire who's got injured. Um, he hasn't had the, the infrastructure behind him to, to get fit. Um, so he came out uh, underdone and overweight, uh, played accordingly. It was a, sh- uh, a shadow, a big shadow, but nevertheless a shadow of the player that, uh, that he had been the previous season and was disappointed, lost his Thunder contractor as a result. So there's no question that uh, all of the players who benefit from these other tournaments do off the back of the, the foundation they build through competitive first class and international cricket. And you've only got to look at someone like uh, Kevin Peterson who was in great demand. Um, you know, average 50, scored 10,000 runs for England. Uh, his best years um, playing in the IPL and were uh, as a result of uh, the work he did uh, playing international cricket, and it's the same with everyone. And Shane Watson's another classic example of that. That it's the, it's the background you get uh, from all the competitive cricket, and also from all the support you get—the strength and conditioning yep. staff, the physios, everybody involved. That wraps up top water news. Now let's come back and play play it or leave it. All right, Mal, play it or leave it time. We're going to start off with. Australia to go undefeated at the Women's World Cup. They'd have to win nine matches. Can they do it? I'm putting this one boldly through the covers. I think they oh, can. Wow. I think they're such a good team. Um, I think they're so well balanced. They have such strong batting. 
uh, that uh, even if teams get good scores against them, I think they're capable of running them down. I mean, in England, I suppose you've always got that possibility that there could be a bit in the wicket, particularly if you're sort of uh, batting first. Uh, but overall, I think that Australia's such a good side and so well prepared that uh, they're every possibility of doing that. All right, one of their star players, Elise Perry, such a dual threat with both bat and ball. How about this one? Perry to be the leading run scorer and wicket taker in the World Cup. Uh, I'm going to run that one down through the gully. Uh, You're going to play it. I'm going to play it, but I'm, only, I'm playing it very carefully because I'm going to say that I think that she's every chance of being the leading run scorer. I think that her batting has overtaken her bowling. I think her bowling is still good, but I think her batting is superb and that uh, it's unlikely that Australia will have those sort of dominant uh, top-order stands that we had in that first game. So I think she'll get a lot of opportunities to make a lot of runs. And in the 50-over game, she's very hard to get out. But at bowling, you don't think she can quite take the number of wickets that she'll need? Oh, I think that she'll she'll do, as she did last night, I think she'll do well as a bowler. But uh, I'm not sure that um, she'll be the absolute uh, force that uh, you need to be to take uh, to be the wicket taker in a World Cup. Okay, her captain, Meg Lanning, to score 30 ODI centuries. Now, that sounds like a lot. And she's only got 10 in 58 games so far. But she's only 25 now. If she keeps, the way she, if she keeps going the way she's going, she'll play close to 200 one-day games, you would think. Uh, and then she'd only need to get 20, test, 20 ODI 100s in 140 games. It'd be easy for Meg. Oh, I think that if... Yeah, I can't see why she can't do that. She's, as you say, she's got 10 at 25 years of age and she, she's going to play for another decade. And the women will only play more cricket. Yeah. Uh, there's going to be there's a concentrated effort now, as there should be, to ensure that uh, women get more opportunities. So that women, women are going to play a lot of cricket, whether it's divided up more into 2020 and one day, so she doesn't get the opportunity to play any more one day cricket. It'll be interesting, but she's only going to have to play what she's playing now to be able to do that. She, she's such a good player. I think she'll romp that in. Right. So yes, I'll smack that through the covers as well. Right, you got your eye in today, Mel. Uh, let's stay in England now. Shivnarine Chandipal, West Indies great batsman. He's uh, currently 42. He scored 117 not out overnight for Lancashire against the pink ball, no less. Uh, Mal, what about Shiv playing till he's 45? Well, uh, I'm going to sort of ease this one sort of down to fine leg because uh, I'm happy to play at it, but um, I'll take this in the widest possible sense. I think he loves the game so much that he'll keep playing, but it might be in the Lancashire League or somewhere. I'm not sure he'll make <laughs> county cricket at 45, although there's every possibility if he keeps going the way he is that, uh, that, he'll, that it's not unusual for players to play well into their 40s in county cricket um, yep. when they're being productive, and he's certainly being productive. So, look, he could do it in county cricket, but... I just tend to think that all he knows how to do is bat, so he'll keep batting until he falls over. It must just be an absolute nightmare to bowl. So, I mean, he's, he's facing mid-wicket when he, the bowler's running in. <laughs> you don't know where to bowl it. No, you're best, uh, you're best not to look at him. You're either best to look at the spot on the wicket or the, or the off stump and just sort of try and bowl uh, in, the, in the corridor of uncertainty, they say, around about the off stump because if you, you'll get completely distracted by what he's doing. <laughs> uh, so it was the first round of floodlit matches uh, in county cricket, this, which is ongoing right now. Mal, what about in 10 years' time, half of the first-class cricket season in both England and Australia will be day-night matches. So we're starting to see it in England now in preparation for their first day-night test against the Windies at Edgbaston. Uh, Australia have had a couple of rounds each year in the Sheffield Shield. But as we've said, the future going forward, we want to get more people watching and attending these games, which means there's going to be more day-night cricket. So we're going to see a split between first-class seasons between day games and day-night games? Uh, I'm going to nudge this just wide a mid-on for a single. Um, I think there will definitely be more day-night cricket. Uh, whether it's uh, half will be interesting. I think I could see in Sheffield Shield each team perhaps perhaps hosting two home and two away 
uh, floodlit games. Yep. Uh, so that'll be four out of ten, which is sort of getting towards half. And I think that you might see something similar in England. The thing you've got to remember in England, there's a lot of these county grounds are quite small and yep. and have limited facilities. So you'd need the bigger grounds um, with lighting to be able to do that. So again, I think that while there'll be more played, I don't think we'll get to quite half. Sixth ball, Mario. I don't know how many runs you've scored off this over, but it's a lot. Uh, hitting them well. You're hitting them well. Finally, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen this one, but... Uh, there was a cow that streaked during a village cricket match in the UK. Um, do you think that cow should receive a £5,000 fine and be banned for two years? <laughs> well, being a bush boy who, uh, who grew up in the country and occasionally had to uh, uh, get the uh, milking cows off the cricket ground so that we could set the nets up to, uh, to have a hit or indeed to play a game on a Saturday and you had to be careful where you dived. And it was pretty rough... Uh, <laughs> It was pretty rough um, coming into the season when the ground was still a bit soft. Um, it didn't particularly dismay me, so uh, I don't have a problem at all with cows being on the ground. All oh, right. So you're going to leave it? You've left the last yeah, one? Yeah, I've left the last one. <laughs> all right, that's it for today's episode. We'll be back next week to review more of the Women's World Cup and preview the England-South Africa Test Series. Mal, thank you very much again for your time today. Always a pleasure. Until next week, head to cricket.com.au for all your news, scores and video for everything that's happening in the cricket world. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.